words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in that portion of scripture which we have read at the beginning in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 19, and reading again verses 13 to 16, verses 13 to 16 in the 19th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure thee by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know. And Paul I am acquainted with, but who are ye? And the men in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I read those verses in particular, but naturally I'm anxious to consider with you the entire incident as it is reported to us in these verses, in this 19th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Now this particular incident is, I take it everybody will agree with me, one of the most extraordinary, one of the most curious of the many incidents which are recorded in the history of the early church in this book and in the ministries of the various servants of God who figure here. It is in every way, I say, a most remarkable incident, and one, as I hope to show you, which is full of instruction and of profit to us, every one of us, gathered together in this house of God this evening. Now, one thing about this incident which makes it of great value and makes it very easy for us to follow it is that it is a picture which presents us with a contrast. The contrast is, of course, between the failure of these sons of Siva and the phenomenal success of the Apostle Paul, because what we read of him is this in verse 11, and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. Indeed, it was as remarkable as this, as verse 12 tells us, so that from his body were brought into the sick handkerchiefs or aprons and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Now there is our basic contrast, therefore, the lamentable and pathetic failure of these Jewish exorcists. These were people, you remember, who had a kind of power to deal with certain cases of devil and demon possession, people who had evil spirits in them. They were able to cast out certain types of devils and deal therefore and heal certain cases of this type. They were known as Jewish exorcists because they were Jews and because they had this power to exorcise or to drive out certain evil spirits from those who were possessed. Well now there I say on the one hand is the failure of these and the phenomenal success on the other hand of the Apostle Paul, the minister of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the contrast is not only given us this explicitly and in words, it is also, of course, implicit in this disastrous failure 
of these sons of Siva. Now, this, I say, is a, a record, a history. And it is one that has a great deal to say to us at this present time. It has a great deal to say to the Christian church as a whole. And it has a great deal also to say to many individuals about their relationship to Christianity. What I mean is this. Don't you see here in the, this picture about the sons of Seba a far too accurate picture of the Christian church speaking generally at the present time. Here you see these men were confronted by this problem, this man who was possessed of devils, or at least had one powerful devil within him. And their problem was, what they attempted and they said to do was, to drive out this devil from this man and to heal him. There I see a picture of the Christian church confronting this world in which we are living tonight. The ills of society, the problems with which we are increasingly being made familiar, juvenile delinquency, breakdown of marriage and home life, theft and robbery and violence, conflict, confusion, international problems, racial problems. The world is full of problems. There it is, devil-possessed evil. And here is the Christian church trying to deal with the problem, trying to cast out this evil. So you see, it has a great deal to say to the church in general, but at the same time it has the same lesson to teach to many an individual. There are many people in the world tonight dealing with the problem of their own life. They're unhappy. They're ill at ease. They're conscious of failure. They are mastered by some particular sin. It gets them down. They're failing. They're in chains. They're slaves to it. They're dominated by it as this poor man was dominated by the evil spirit that was in him. It's a perfect picture, therefore, of such people trying to deal with the problem of their own personal lives, trying to get rid of this devil that is within them. It's a picture, I say, of this quest for happiness and peace and joy and satisfaction and victory. So we can look at it in both ways as a great picture of the church in general, a picture also, I say, of many individual people, some inside the church, some outside the church, but all who have some general interest in Christianity and who by means of it are trying to get rid of this devil that is in them and trying to solve their problem. Now then, this is the tragedy, isn't it? That far too often the Christian church today rarely does resemble the sons of Siva. You know what happened to them? They said, we adjure thee by Jesus whom Paul preaches to come out. But far from coming out of the men, the devil used the men to attack at any rate, two of these sons of Siva, and not only overpowered them, but uh, caused them to escape for their lives. In other words, the picture is one of a dismal failure. They were not successful. But not only were they not successful, but you notice the tables were turned upon them. 
And instead of their being able to cast out the devil, the devil attacks them, and there they are on the defensive, fighting for their lives and having to escape, losing part of their clothing. And you see them vanishing outside with the men possessed running after them. I'm not here to pass judgment, but I wish that I didn't feel quite as unhappy as I do about the Christian church speaking generally. Is the Christian church dealing with the problem of evil in the world? Is she successful at the present time? Who would like to claim that she is? Indeed, isn't this unfortunately the true picture? The church seems to be on the defensive. It's the world who is on the aggressive. And the church is painfully and weakly trying to defend herself and her doctrine and retreating all along the line. You hear it in the debates about the doctrines of the Christian faith and other things on the wireless and on your television. The church on the defensive, the church being laughed at. The enemy is successful and the church retreating painfully and pathetically and in the end looking almost ridiculous. So that the vast majority of sophisticated people today when they even hear of the church, just smile. And if you should happen to tell them that you spend your Sunday evening by going to a place of worship, well, really, they do feel that you're an object of pity and of compassion. The church is feebly, weakly, failing and retreating, and the enemy seems to be successful, and the church is disappearing, as it were, going out through the door. The statistics prove that. The power seems to be on the other side, and the church seems weak, and ineffective and powerless. But it's not only true of the church, isn't that equally true of so many in their personal lives? Do you know anything about victory in your life? Are you afraid of life? Are you afraid of death? Are you afraid of tomorrow? How are you standing up to the problem of life and living as it comes to you from the outside and as it comes to you from inside? What of all these powers that are within you? Are you mastering them? Are you getting a victory? What about jealousy and envy, lust and passion, and all these various other things? Isn't it uh, true to say that there are so many who, while using the Christian terminology, uh, present pictures of failure and of defeat, and rather give the impression that the Christian faith is something which, far from... Helping a man to solve his problem seems to increase the problem and the burden. Very well. There is the picture that is presented here. And what we must do this evening is to analyze this. Why is this? Why did the sons of Siva fail? Why were they discomfited and defeated and have to beat their hasty retreat? Why is it that the church in general is failing today? Why is it that individuals know the same failure? Well, we have nothing to do but to analyze what the record tells us. We can divide it very simply like this. We look at the sons of Siva and listen to what we are told about them and we'll soon understand the reasons for their failure. And then we look at the Apostle Paul and we remind ourselves of what is true about him and we shall have no difficulty in understanding the secret of his great, his remarkable, his phenomenal success. What is it? Very well, let's look first at the sons of Siva. Some of these different versions seem to indicate that the seven were not present. It was just two of them. It doesn't matter at all whether they were two or seven. At any rate, there were two of them at, at a minimum. The sons of Siva. What was the matter, I say, with these people? What was the cause of their failure, their discomfiture, 
they're being made to look ridiculous as they beat their hasty retreat, half-clad. There can be no question at all as to the answer to that question. Their main trouble, indubitably, was this. That they had nothing but a second-hand belief. What was true of them is, is the thing that is true of so much of the Christian church today and of so many individuals, particularly those, if I may say so, who have been brought up in the realm of the Christian church, but who know nothing about the power of the gospel and whose lives are failures. I say it's nothing but a second-hand belief. Look at it. Listen to these people. Certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus saying, but listen to what they said. We adjure thee by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Second hand, you see. They couldn't do it directly. They have to put it in terms of the Jesus that Paul preaches. This was their position. They'd been hearing about this phenomenal success of this man, and they said, well, what's it due to? He seems to have succeeded in cases where we had failed. What's his secret? Oh, well, they say, you go and listen to him. And you'll find that he always does it in the name of this Jesus that they're always talking about. So then they try it, you see, and say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preacheth. Second-hand belief. This is the essential cause of their trouble. Well, now then, let us look at this, because this is surely the main cause of trouble still. Am I speaking to somebody? I know I am. Who has always regarded himself or herself as a family, as a Christian? You say, of course I'm a Christian. I've always been a Christian. I was brought up to be a Christian. And yet you know and you admit it that uh, there are other people who also call themselves Christians who seem to be very different. They seem to know what they believe and in whom they believe. They seem to have a new kind of life. They seem to have power in their lives which you know nothing at all about. And you're beginning to see that there's something wrong with you, obviously. What is it? I'm suggesting it's this very thing, this second-hand belief. And indeed, I am suggesting it is the trouble speaking generally with the Christian church as a whole tonight. And that that is why she is failing. I mean something like this. All these sons of Siva had got was something that they'd heard about. Something that had been done by this man Paul and something that he was saying. And there are so many like that in the church. They've got nothing but tradition. They know the Christian church has been going a long time. They've heard something of the history of the past, of certain great saints, certain great preachers, certain great movements of the Spirit, certain great revivals in the past. And they've heard something about this, and they've come into it, but it doesn't get any further than that. They've got nothing but tradition. They say, but I've always been brought up to go to a place of worship. Always taught to say my prayer. I've always tried to read a certain amount of the Bible. So they use the name of Christ, they use the, termin the Christian terminology, they use these phrases that are used by the others. But it doesn't seem to get any further than that. This Jesus, about whom they've heard vaguely, uh, that was the name that they invoked. Uh, in the name of this Jesus, they'd, uh, they'd heard of Jesus, so they used the name. And there are many, I say, using the name in as vague a manner as that. And they've not only heard of Jesus, but to whom this Paul preaches. Oh, yes, there are bendy names about. They've heard of Martin Luther. And they say we are followers of Luther. 
Others have heard of John Knox, followers of Knox. Others have heard of John Wesley. We are Methodists, they say. And Wesleys are great men. They've heard about these men, and they use their names. They think they're their followers. But I say so often in practice, it's nothing but the use of the name as the sons of Siva used it. I wonder what Luther and Knox and Wesley and many another whom I could mention would think of such people if they met them now. Well, we know what they did with such people when they met them in the days of their lives here in this world. They put them out to the church. They say, don't use my name. You don't belong to me. You're not in my position. But the names are being used. In the name of Jesus, which Paul preaches. Tradition. Some second-hand knowledge and belief. What's the trouble? Well, I say the trouble is this. These men, you see, were using the name of Jesus Christ as a sort of incantation. They, as exorcists, you see, they'd got their phrases. All these magicians, exorcists and various people, they'd got certain phrases which they repeated, much as conjurers do now. Uh, certain phraseology and terminology that they use and these but now they are now they say here's a new one for us let's try this in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches try this an incantation but nothing happened and there are many I say who are doing the same thing still they're simply using Christian phrases Christian terminology they're talking about Christ and they do they talk about salvation they use all these terms but they have no idea as to what they mean by them. Go and ask them what they mean by salvation. As to how it happens. Go and ask them the meaning of the term justification or sanctification. Go and ask them to tell you what it means to be born again. They know nothing about it at all. They talk about Christian and about Christ and about these things, but they have no understanding. They have no definitions. The, they have no direct knowledge at all like these people. They have to put it in the name of Jesus whom somebody else preaches. They can't say in the name of Jesus in whom I believe and preach. No, no, the Jesus that Paul preached. It's indirect. It's somebody else. They're riding on some vague tradition. They don't understand it. They don't know what they've got. They're repeating a phrase as if it's going to act magically because of its terminology. That was certainly the trouble with these sons of Siva. They had no direct knowledge of Jesus or of his faith and of his teaching, nor of his power. So they have to put it in this indirect manner. I ask you in the name of God, my friend, tonight, is your faith yours? Or have you just gone on repeating phrases that you were taught when you were a child? Do you know what you're talking about? Do you know what you mean? When you say, I'm a Christian, what do you mean? What's the content of that? What does it mean to be a Christ man, person, believer, follower? Do you know what it means? If you don't, you're repeating phrases like the sons of Siva. And it's not surprising that your Christian faith doesn't help you very much and doesn't make any difference between you and the man who's right outside in the world and who doesn't call himself a Christian. That was their essential trouble. Indirect second-hand belief. Well, now, how had they got into that position? Why should anybody ever be in this position? And the answer is brought out very plainly. It was due to the fact that their whole approach to Christianity was entirely wrong. Now I want to repeat this, because I'm going to prove it to you. 
their whole approach was entirely wrong. Let me analyze it. The first mistake they made with regard to the power of Christianity was this. They thought that Christianity was something that a man can take up when he wants to do so. Now, here's this significant and key phrase in the whole paragraph. Then certain of the vagabond Jews' exorcists took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus. They took upon them to do this. Exactly. And from the minute they did that, they were all wrong and couldn't be right again. They'd started along the wrong road. They took upon them. What does it mean? Well, it means this. They, as, they, as I say, had kept on hearing about this Paul and his wonderful success and uh, the cause of it and this preaching. Uh, they said, now, this is very interesting. This is very good. This may be of value to us in our business and what we are doing. So they became interested in this. And then, of course, the next step was that, uh, well, they said, uh, we'll take this up. This is rather good. You see, you hear of somebody whose life has been changed. You say, that person looks much happier than he or she used to. I'm going in for this. I rather, I want to take this. So you approach the, Christi the whole of Christianity in this way. Uh, religion, what is it? Well, it's something that a man takes up. Christianity, what is it? Something a man goes in for. Uh, I, I decided, says the man, to be a Christian. You see the trouble he's doing it all. It's something that he hears about and a bit intrigued, interested in it, and uh, he looks on now and he examines it, and wow, well, yes, I, I'm going to take this up. I'm going in for this. They took upon themselves to use this incantation in the name of the Lord Jesus. Is your view of Christianity that, that it's something that you can take up and put down as you like? That you can look at it in entire detachment? You sit with folded arms with your great intellect and you're going to consider it. Shall I take this up or not? Oh, well, yes, it seems a pretty good philosophy to me, this. It's all right. It does a lot of good. I'll go in for this. So you take up Christianity. You decide to go in for religion. My dear friend, if that is your position, you are not a Christian any more than the sons of Siva were. You know nothing about it. You can't take up this. Do you know why? This is something that takes you up. And if this hasn't taken hold of you, and you think you're taking hold of it, I say you haven't begun to understand it. You're all wrong. And everything you say from that point forward is irrelevant because it's futile. Certain of the sons of Siva took upon them, of course, People have so often decided to join the Christian church. Why, it's even worse than that. So often the decision isn't even taken by the people themselves, but by their parents. I'm a living instance of that. I was told that I had to join the Christian church. Why? Because there'd been a conversation between the minister of the church where I was brought up and my parents. Even it was as remote as that from me. I was put into it. I was told that the time had now come and that I'd reached an age when I could do this and become a member and take it up. I'd never been taken hold of, and I wasn't a Christian. But I was received into the membership of the Christian church, so called. Talk upon themselves. 
Have you been taken hold of? Or are you in charge this evening? Are you looking on? Are you judging and estimating and taking this and... Are you at the center? Are you deciding? Are you the one, I say, who counts vitally? That's not Christianity. And that always leads to nothing but dismal and almost ridiculous failure. But wait a minute, let's follow it on. That was only the first thing. The second thing is, in, in, in a sense, even more important. It follows, of course, from the first. It's this. Their whole attitude to the Christian faith was entirely wrong. And this I want to show in two ways. The first was this. They regarded Christianity obviously as something which could be added on to what they'd already got and already believed. Did you notice it? Here they are. Now remember, these men are Jewish exorcists. These were the sons of one Siva, a Jew and chief of the priests. They were Jews. They believed the Jewish religion. They were Judaizers. I mean by that that they were brought up in Judaism. There was their position. And what to them is Christianity? Oh, Christianity is to them something that they add on to what they've got. They hadn't ceased to be Jews, you see. But they added on this name of Jesus whom Paul preaches to what they'd already got and what they already believed. Now that is, I say, the basic and the essential fallacy. We can describe the position of the sons of Siva in this way. What had they got? Well, they had Judaism plus Christian terminology. And there had been no change in their basic belief or their basic position. In the name of God, I want to assert this evening, and this is to me the tragedy of the days in which we live, that that, unfortunately, is the simple truth about so much that passes as Christianity in this and in every land at this present hour. And it is the position of thousands of people who call themselves Christians. Can I establish my point? I think I can. I do it like this. The Christian church today is prepared to enter into what is called a congress of world faiths and world religions. What does that mean? Well, it means this, you see, that you all go together, Christianity, Judaism, Mohammedanism, Confucianism, and so on, Buddhism, Hinduism, and you all meet together. And what do they say? Well, they say now every one of these has got a sort of insight into truth. And what we need is, of course, a great world religion. Yes, of course, we want the Christian insight, the Christian emphasis, the Christian point of view, but not to the exclusion of the others. You add it to the others, and you add the others to it. A kind of eclecticism, syncretism, an addition of all the insights and the faith. Christianity is not something exclusive, but something that can be added to the others, exactly as the sons of Siva added it to the others. Congress of world faiths, world religions. Yes, but you see it also when you look at individuals and their point of view. I'll tell you what so much of what passes as Christianity today is in reality. It is nothing but philosophy using Christian terms and Christian terminology. How do they arrive at a knowledge of the truth? Not by accepting the Bible as divine revelation. Oh, no, no. They read the philosophers. They get their real fundamental view of life from the philosophers. And then they just add on 
some of the teaching of Christ that they happen to like. But basically it's nothing but philosophy, what man thinks, what man believes, what science teaches. So out go your miracles, out goes your virgin birth, out goes the physical resurrection, out goes the atonement. What's controlling? Philosophy. Philosophy is the basis and the center, but they add on certain Christian terms and Christian terminology. It's no more than that. Then in the case of others, to put it in a slightly different form, what passes as Christianity is nothing but sheer humanism. And humanism, of course, is again a result of philosophy. The men, the good men's view of life. The altruist, the philanthropist. The man who believes in the uplift of society, in the betterment of the race, in law and order and decency. This good natural man, he's a humanist. Now I say there are so many who pass as Christian who are nothing but sure humanists, but they add on certain Christian phrases and a bit of the Christian terminology. They still use the name of Christ. It's no more than that. Take others. What is their position? Well, theirs is nothing but pure and adulterated socialism. That's the basic thing, socialism. But they, unlike the vast majority of socialists, use the name of Christ and talk about the Christian church and use certain Christian phrases and terminology. And I could go on adding to my list. Now, there are some of the common ones. In other words, this is my point. The basic belief is not determined by Christianity. It's by something else. Jewish exorcists. Judaism, but they add on the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And so there are so many today, I say, who are in that position. Their real basic belief is what is provided by philosophy or humanism or socialism or any one of these isms, but they happen to put it in a Christian form and using the great Christian term. Can you prove what you're saying, says somebody? Unfortunately, I can prove it, but too easily. If you watch the public press, you will find that ever and again there are various letters published in the papers protesting against this or that on some social or warlike question or racialism or something like that. Now, have a look at the names of the people who've signed the letter, and you know what you'll find? Well, what you will most commonly of all find is this. The names will be Bertrand Russell, who has written a book saying why I'm not a Christian, uh, Julian Huxley, the Christian, the scientific humanist who dismisses Christianity altogether. J.B. Priestley, the rationalist who does the same thing. J.P. Taylor, the historian, who does the same thing. There are the names of these deniers of the faith, these infidels, these skeptics, these agnostics. And then amongst them you get one or two men who are known as ministers of the Christian church. There's no need to argue about this, is there? The basic belief, you see, is that which is held by the Bertrand Russells and the Huxleys and the Priestleys. Otherwise, they could never sign the document. The basic belief is not Christianity, but it's humanism or socialism or philosophy. But you add to it the Jesus whom Paul preaches. But what matters is a man's basic belief. And when that is truly Christian, these other men can't sign because they don't believe it, they deny it. 
But that is what is passing as Christianity today, isn't it? This kind of talk, which these others can join in. And so you sometimes read in the papers that really the great fight for Christianity today is not being fought so much by the Christian church as by these men who are outside the church. That's the view of Christianity. Judaism plus Christian terminology. Or to put it in the second place, I put it like this. The trouble with these sons of Siva was that they believed that they could pick and choose and select and extract out of the Christian faith that which suited them. Christianity, they don't believe it. They're not interested in it. Ah, yes, but at this point it seems to be valuable and helpful, so we'll take that out. We'll use it as the incantation to drive out devils. Reject the rest. That's why the Christian church is as she is today. That is why so many people who use the name Christian know nothing at all about its power in their daily lives. They simply take out of it what they like. They say, ah, oh, the Sermon on the Mount. That's what I believe in. But they don't take the whole of that, you see. They don't take the Beatitudes. They start with turning the other cheek, as if the Sermon on the Mount only said that. They pick and choose and extract and reject. The deity of Christ they throw out. Virgin birth, gone. Miracles, ridiculous. Science makes it impossible. Atonement, nonsense. Resurrection, of course, these things don't happen. And they approach Christianity like that and think they can take and pick and choose, do the same with the Bible, and still expect to see the results of the Christian faith. And, of course, they don't. That is the second great cause of trouble, which leads me to my third and my last point about these sons of Siva, which is this. They not only regard Christianity as something which they can take up like that and pick and choose. They think, you see, that it is something which they can use to serve their own ends. What were they interested in? Not in Christ, not in God, not in Christianity. In what? In their own business as exorcists. Oh, this is something that looks as if it's going to help me. Take it up. I'm going to use it to suit my own ends. And that is being done today with the Christian faith. The state, the cabinet, governments, members of parliament come and appeal to the church to help them with this and that. Not a bit of it. You can't use Christianity to serve your own ends, even though you be the state. Ah, oh, they say, now then, there's a war on and we've lost a number of dreadnoughts. Let's have a national day of prayer. Civic service, coronation, this or that. Use Christianity. No, no, my friend, you'll get the result that the sons of Siva achieved if you try that. You can't pick up Christianity and, and use it to suit your own ends, even though you be the state. But look at the individuals who do this. There are many people who go to church for one reason only, and that is because it's a social custom. If you're at the house party, it's expected of you on Sunday morning, so you go. A part of the social round, a part of the procedure. People have very strange reasons for taking up Christianity and using it. Why do people go to a place of worship, do you think? The real reason is to worship God, but people come sometimes to meet one another. Their idea is purely selfish. Marriage may result from this. Some position I want may result from this. 
I'll be somehow better if I do this, so I take it up to suit my own ends. You know, that was the curse of the last century. When people went to the house of God because it would help them to get a job or to retain their job or to get some social work to do or to get an outlet for their personality, they did it solely for themselves and out of self-interest. And it's still done. On a slightly higher level, there are people who come to it and look, for, and look to it because they would like to feel that their sins are forgiven. They have a lurking fear of death still. They're looking for happiness or healing or something else, guidance. They want to know what to do. So they come to it in order that they may use it to solve their immediate problem. And they're interested in nothing else. There's no surrender. They're living the life of worldlings. But they pick out forgiveness or this or that. Their basic life is not changed and is not surrendered to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's my analysis of the sons of Siva. What does that sort of attitude to Christianity lead to? Here's the answer, complete, absolute failure, ridicule, contempt, banishment. Oh, I like the way in which it's put here. There were seven sons of Siva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did this thing. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, Jesus, I know. I know him and I tremble at him. Paul... The translation isn't very good here. Paul, I am acquainted with. I've heard of him. He at any rate means something. He is at any rate a man who achieves success. But who are you? And he turned upon them. Men in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Listen to what the devil says. Jesus I know and Paul I'm acquainted with. But who are you, contemptible as you are? Get out. And I have a terrible feeling that that is what the devil is saying to the Christian church today. He is laughing at her. He is ridiculing her. She is weak and ineffective. She is powerless. She is being attacked and she is running away. She doesn't know where she is nor what she has got. Why is this? Well, there is only one answer. The devil in that man is greater than the power of any incantation. And the evil in the world and in the individual human heart tonight is too much for this kind of thing. We are not wrestling against men, against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And if you've got nothing but a bit of tradition and a second-hand belief and an indirect knowledge, I say it won't give you authority, it won't give you power, it won't give you the, the strength that you need. Christian terms are of no value. It's the power of the living Christ that counts. And I suggest that this is what we are witnessing at the present time. The church is like the sons of Siva. The devil is laughing and triumphing. He's prevailing and ridiculing the Christian church. Before our very eyes. That is the explanation and the analysis of the failure of the sons of Siva.
let us turn to the Apostle Paul. And oh, what a change, what a difference. What a contrast. Special miracles were wrought by God through the hands of Paul. What's the secret? What is the difference? Well, I needn't keep you because it is the exact opposite of everything that I've been saying. The first answer is simply this. Paul never took it upon himself to do any of these things. Listen to him writing his epistles. How does he start them? Here, Paul called to be an apostle. Paul. He didn't take it up. He didn't take it on. Called to be an apostle. What's it mean? Well, it's the whole story, the great story again, of the road to Damascus. You are not looking at a man here who decided to take up Christianity. You are looking at a man who thought he was pleasing God by persecuting Christians and Christianity. And who went out down breathing out threatenings and slaughter in a desire to do so. What made the difference? How did he ever become an apostle? He tells us, I was apprehended. He was arrested on the road to Damascus. He was taken hold of. He was convicted. He was humbled, humiliated, condemned, lying helpless on his back, crying out, Who art thou, Lord, and what wouldst thou have me to do? He didn't take up Christ. Christ took hold of him and dealt with him and convicted him and converted him. Christ worked upon him. I am what I am, he says, by the grace of God. I haven't done it. He didn't take it on himself. God apprehended and arrested him and changed him. Have you been in the hands of God? Are you in this building tonight because you know that God has taken hold of you? I can't see you're a Christian unless you're aware that God has, deal, has dealings with you, has had dealings and still has dealings with you. Have you felt the hand of God upon you, calling you? That's the first thing about the Apostle Paul. Let me hurry to the second. Unlike these others, he has a true belief. He didn't hold on to his Judaism. He was brought up in it and he was an expert. A Pharisee of the Pharisees, excelling over all others in his knowledge of the law. Judaism, like the sons of Siva. But look at him as the apostle's special miracles. What does he believe now? Is it his old Judaism plus the name of Christ? Not a bit of it. What things were gained to me, then I counted but loss that I might gain Christ. Dung and refuse. He turned his back upon it. He shed it. He is no longer a Pharisee. He no longer holds on to the Jews, the religion. He had. He boasted of it at the time. He's left it. There is a complete change. What has he come to believe? Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus whom he persecuted as the Lord of glory. He came to believe that this man of Nazareth whom he despised was none other than God incarnate. 
So you see he writes about him and says when the fullness of the times was come God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law that he might redeem them that are under the law. Although he was in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God nevertheless humbled himself made himself of no reputation the incarnation the virgin birth God coming down in the flesh. That's what he believed. The sons of Siva never believed it. They knew nothing about it. And when they did hear, they rejected it. What else did he believe in? Oh, the atonement. He saw that he was a vile and a hopeless and a wretched sinner. But that God had so loved him has to send his only begotten son into the world, what for? To take his sins upon him, to bear Saul of Tarsus' sins, and to be punished for them. The son of God, he says, who loved me, and who gave himself for me. No man ever expressed it more gloriously. God has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God, in him God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ by which the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. That's what he believed. The sons of Siva didn't. Paul did. What else? The resurrection. None of the Jews believed it. They believed it was a fake. And they tried to bribe the soldiers to say that they had faked it and so on. But Paul believes resurrection. Declare to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus, dead, risen, manifesting himself unto him on the road to Damascus as one born out of due time. What else? Oh, the same Jesus ascended, seated at the right hand of God in glory and majesty and power, waiting until his enemies be made his footstool. What else? that he's reigning and that he will reign and then he will come in the fullness of the times and rout his enemies, destroy them, judge the whole world in righteousness and set up his everlasting kingdom. And that when he did go back into heaven, he sent down his Holy Spirit upon the church and gave him as a gift to men who believed so, you see, when he came to Ephesus, he asked these people, did you receive the Holy Ghost when you believed? They hadn't understood this. They didn't know the Holy Ghost had been given. So he preached to them, and then he baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then, when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came upon them. He believed in the power, the living power and activity of the Holy Ghost. Now that, you see, is his belief, not something he adds on to his basic Judaism but a revolution. Something entirely and altogether new. And that in turn led to the third thing, which is that Christ became his Lord. He never thought of using Christianity to serve his own ends. He surrendered himself utterly and absolutely to the Lord. His first words were, 
What wilt thou have me to do, Lord? He gave up all, counted it as dung and lust. He sacrificed everything, reputation, prospects, future, all for Christ. His one ambition was that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. He calls himself the bondslave of Jesus Christ. Christ, he says, is all in all, the beginning and the end. This wasn't a second-hand belief. This wasn't a vague, nebulous knowledge. Listen to him. I know him, O my heaven. I know him. He knew him. Not the Jesus that somebody else preached. My Jesus. My gospel. My Lord. My God. I know whom I have believed. That's Paul. And that is the explanation of the difference between Saul of Tarsus become the Apostle Paul and the sons of Siva. This man is filled with the Spirit, filled with power, filled with the might of God through the Spirit. And what is the result? Success. Phenomenal success. Handkerchiefs that had touched his body could heal by the power that was in him because he believed in this Christ and in God through him and was filled with the spirit and of power. That was his secret. That has always been the secret of the church in every period of revival. That has been the secret of every individual saint and servant of God whom he has used throughout the centuries. That was the secret of Augustine. That was the secret of Martin Luther. Look at him trying as a monk and failing. What's the change? How did he become the great reformer? He saw the truth about this Jesus and the way of salvation in Christ alone, justification by faith. And the Spirit came upon him and he preached like a giant. Not only Luther but all the English reformers, the Puritans, Whitfield, Wesley, Rowlands, Harris, every one of them, here's the secret. They'd been trying, they'd failed, they were ineffective, and the devil was ridiculing them. Suddenly, they believed truly on the Son of God, and they're filled with the Spirit, and they're irresistible, and the devil is cast out. That is not only the teaching of the Scripture, you see. It is the teaching of the entire history of the Christian church. What are we to do then, says someone? The answer is quite simple. When this happened, do you remember what followed? Many people who were in the church were convicted of their wrongness and of their failure. You remember what they did? They came and they confessed it, that they'd been living a double life, that they hadn't really given themselves, and many brought their books 
their books on exorcism and magic and on philosophy, and they made a bonfire, they burnt the lot. And they gave themselves to a simple, unreserved belief in and trusting Jesus of Nazareth as Savior and as Lord. That is what they did. And what followed mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. And it still comes to the same thing. The church can use the name of Christ in Christian phrases as much as she likes. But while she denies the basic truths concerning him, she will not be blessed. She will have no power. The position will go from bad to worse, and the devil will be glorying and ridiculing the church. She must repent, believe the gospel, and give herself to her Lord. And what is true for the church is equally true for any individual that is in this service. Would you like to know the power of the gospel? Would you like the comfort of the gospel? Would you like to know your sins forgiven? Would you like to know the loss of the fear of death? Would you like to feel that you're a new being? That there's new life in you? That you know Christ and know God as your personal father? Would you like victory over things that have crippled you and made you ashamed? This is what you were called upon to do. Confess your wrong approach. Your incomplete surrender. Acknowledge and confess your sin. Burn your books. Throw away your philosophy and believe this. Throw away your science in this respect. Come to this as a little child. Believe it. The revelation, the word of God. Accept it. Submit to it as Saul of Tarsus did. Say, speak to me. What doest thou have me to do, Lord? Come. Repent, believe, surrender, rise up and go after him. And you will receive the Spirit. And new life and power will come into you. And where you were formerly a ridiculous failure, you will become a triumphant and a joyful saint. Let us, by the grace of God, learn the lessons of the sons of Stephen. And let us, with the Apostle Paul, humbled, convicted, smashed and hopeless, look up and say, Who art thou, Lord? What wouldest thou have me to do? Repent. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved.
Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.